And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We have three author interviews for you, and here's the first. And for this portion of WGTD's Morning Show, I am really excited to be making my the acquaintance for the first time with a very talented writer by the name of Mike Johnston, once an architect, but now a writer of of wonderful, entertaining fantasy fiction for for young readers. And uh, what I have in hand is a delightful book called Confessions of a Dork Lord, uh, Grave Danger. This is, I think, the second in a series devoted to uh, a young adolescent boy who is uh, sort of wrestling with his own uh, legacy as the son of the so-called Dark Lord, heir to the throne of black and broken glass, uh, uh, supposedly the next leader of the grim world, but wrestling with all that at the tender age of 12. And uh, out of Mike Johnston's rich imagination has come this uh, very detailed and vivid world in which we have the... the uh, grim folk lands and the fair folk lands and how do these lands and their various inhabitants uh, understand one another and coexist. It's all absolutely delightful and I'm excited to be able to speak with Mike Johnston about where all these interesting ideas came for his uh, Confessions of a Dork Lord series which is published by G.P. Putnam Sons. Mike Johnston, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited that we can do this. So let's talk, first of all, about this interesting uh, veer in the road for you professionally. Uh, tell us what you initially uh, intended for your professional life to be, and then tell us what happened to change that. Yeah, um, good question. Um, so I began as an architect. Um, I, uh, I studied architecture. I have a master's from Columbia, and I lived in New York City and worked as an architect for quite a few years before moving to Los Angeles and also practicing architecture um, here. So um, I love architecture. It was kind of a, something that will probably always be a part of me, but I also love books. And I, you know, maybe that was my first love when I was a kid. Um, you know, I think I discovered fantasy and science fiction at a very young age and spent probably an inordinate amount of time with it, with reading. And so it's, it's something that I've always felt comfortable with and loved. And I think as I grew older and as I experienced the profession in the world, I found that I loved architecture. I didn't love the profession of architecture. Sometimes practice is different from the thing you learn about in school. Um, and so I found myself seeking creative outlets and, and, and books were that other thing that I loved. Um, and the other thing I wanted to explore. So I started working on it like anybody else, probably part-time. There's a long sort of transition between the two for me. Um, and I've written, kids weren't my first uh, venture into writing. I've also written for adults. I have a epic fantasy series called The Amber Throne, first book, Solari, that uh, debuted from Tor Books. Um, and this kid's book actually came out of that experience. I was writing kind of very detailed, historic fiction for adults. And I wanted to do something a little bit different. And I had a young kid and I was reading to her a lot and kind of seeing what made her laugh and what got her excited. And I thought, you know, I, I could probably do that. And it would be a nice kind of antidote to like the seriousness of my adult fiction. I could do something really kind of short form and fun and humorous. So I write two different, very, two very different styles. And I find that refreshing. Um, that was, that's kind of how I started in books. Yeah. So I think a lot of people uh, from the outside looking in would carelessly assume 
that it is a lot easier to write this kind of a book than to write the denser, more detailed uh, adult fantasy fiction that you were describing earlier. And I suspect that maybe in some ways it's true, but I suspect in other ways this has uh, is rife with challenges all its own. Uh, what are the challenges of writing effectively for young readers, specifically ages 8 to 12? Yeah, I think we fool ourselves in thinking that kids are easy or unsophisticated compared to adults. And we, of course, we know that's false. Um, kids are demanding. And, you know, for the first book, I was able to tour uh, and visit uh, middle schools and, uh, and elementary schools, too, um, prior to the pandemic. So, you know, when you step out in front of an audience of two or three hundred kids, you have to be funny and interesting fast. Like adults will give you time. Kids will not. And books are the same way. Like your book has to be engaging and it has to be engaging on the first page in a way that, you know, some of the adult books I like take, you know, 50, 100 pages to get going, sometimes less. But, you know, adults are willing to give you time to develop a plot and a story and a character in a way that kids are not. You know, kids are ruthless. You have to give them something interesting on the first sentence or you're going to lose them. So, there are challenges with kids and with adults and they're, they're different. You know, the adult books do take more time. I spent two years on each of my adult books, um, which is probably like four times how long it takes to write one of the kids books. So there, there are definitely challenges with adult books that don't exist in kids books, but it would be naive to think that kids aren't really sophisticated and really demanding. Right. We're speaking with Mike Johnston about his new series of book called Confessions of a Dork Lord. And the, the second book in the series has just come out called Confessions of a Dork Lord, Grave Danger. So describe, uh, Mike Johnston, to our listeners, uh, the world that you have created uh, in which uh, this young man, your main character, uh, exists. Well, it's, um, it's a fantasy story, and it's a little like a lot of fantasy stories we've known. We've got a kid in magic school like Harry Potter. We've got a big fantasy world with orcs and goblins and knights and elves like Lord of the Rings. But, you know, I've kind of tweaked the story a little bit to make it new and maybe a little bit fresh. So our hero is the son of the Dark Lord. Now, who's the Dark Lord? It's sort of the big baddie, the, the Sauron of Lord of the Rings, the Voldemort of Harry Potter. He's the son of the bad guy, and he's expected to follow in his father's sort of grim footsteps, but he isn't sure he's up to the task, isn't sure he wants to follow in his dad's footsteps. He's got limitations. He's kind of allergic to the whole fire and brimstone thing. He isn't sure he wants to be his dad, but everyone wants him to follow in his footsteps. So we kind of see that classic tension of expectations from adults placed upon a child and how he will deal with them and how he will assert his own personality and his individuality, um, you know, when faced with, you know, outside expectations for who he'll be. That's a tough situation. So I deal with it with a lot of humor um, because that's how kids can deal with life. Right. As you have constructed this world and the characters within it, uh, how meticulous have you been with all of the details uh, in terms of like how the magic works, who can do magic, what is the nature of that magic, and so on. I think some people craft these books in a sense rather loosely, and others really feel like they want to create a fairly firm matrix or framework within which these characters live and breathe. Yeah, you know, when I'm ready for adults, the, the world and the systems are a little bit more airtight, watertight. You know, you, you can't have leaks in the in the whole thing or, or the adults will pick it apart. But, you know, for the kids, I'm a little more flexible because I 
think the story and the world building have to be in service of the humor. Like these are funny books and I and they they sort of take all the fantasy tropes and mock them. There's funny spell books and there's funny spells. There's spell books that'll teach you how, you know, to make desserts dance and uh, the spells do funny things. The characters do funny things. So I, I'm, I'm willing to bend the rules here and there with the kids book a little bit as long as it's believable for the sake of a good joke. Um, because I, I'm trying to make readers out of the kids and, and, and I want to I want to entertain them. I want them to have a lot of fun and still have something that's smart. But uh, these are fun books. So uh, towards the beginning of this uh, newest book, Confessions of a Dork Lord, Grave Danger, uh, uh, the dork lord, the young, the young, uh, the young boy who is your your main character, um, is trying to create some excitement, generate some attention for himself by uh, doing uh, a really big spell. And if I remember correctly, he's actually only done one spell correctly. So yeah. in this world, apparently, the young magicians start out very, very slowly and very, very carefully. Uh, but he's trying to do something kind of outrageous and above himself, and uh, and it actually ends up being uh, thanks to a, a really uh, interesting misunderstanding uh, over a hominin that uh, <laughs> that in fact his spell has a very different effect from what's intended. Describe to our listeners what I'm talking about. So he's in magic school, uh, which we all kind of know from Harry Potter and the million other kind of you know magic schools we visited in fantasy over the years. But it's not like Harry Potter. He's not immediately good at magic or inherently talented. And yes, in the first book, he's never even cast a magical spell. And by the end, he's only cast one. Um, and so as the second book opens, he's trying to cast a second. He like to he just kept cast two spells in his whole life. And he unfortunately hears about a really powerful spell, a spell that's way beyond his ability, something for older kids. And so he asks about it. He learns the spell and attempts to cast it, um, trying to impress his peers um, and maybe doing something he shouldn't, maybe stretching his ability beyond what he should. And he causes a sort of grave calamity. He destroys literally the castle with the throne room, the castle that he is supposed to one day rule from, he destroys. And his blunder is so bad, he finds himself kicked out of his own castle, the guy who's one day supposed to rule it, and forced to live with his mortal enemies, which is us, the humans, basically. So um, it's this is kind of a story about turning like some of the fantasy tropes on their head, he, and uh, I've kept going with that second book. So it's a fun exploration about learning who you are and maybe learning about who we think are our enemies, and maybe they aren't. Right, exactly. If I guess that's one of the uh, one of the best uh, abiding themes in the book is uh, the, the way in which this this young boy has his his assumptions very much upended, and it and it kind of happens over and over again, and it's uh, and it's really really enduring. It's fair to say that this is also a book about unlikely friendships. I think so. Yeah, that's a great observation. It it is a book about essentially what he's forced to live with his enemy he, they're the bad guys the orcs the goblins the dragons that's what wick represents our hero and there's kind of the good guys the knights wizards and elves 
Um, I've taken some of these cliches, some of these tropes from fantasy, and I'm kind of playing with them and turning them on the head and trying to make them new and interesting. So he goes off to live with the good guys, which because they're the bad guys, they see the good guys as the bad guys. So he's really going to live with the bad guys, which is us, the humans. Um, and he he thinks this guy should be his enemy. He thinks he should be this terrible person, but he discovers a friend in them. So it's a little bit about real life and how we sometimes have expectations about people who are different from us. And those expectations aren't necessarily true when we actually meet these people. Um, and as you said, yes, that's something that kind of keeps happening to them over and over. Um, so it's, you know, it's about coming of age and learning who you are and learning how to act around other people who are different. You mentioned that you, uh, you have a young child and, uh, I don't know what age they are, but, uh, were they a literal sounding board for you as this book was taking shape? I mean, would you try out certain things to see how it went over or did you wait until you had a finished product to share with them? Yeah, no doubt. You know, um, my daughter's 15 now, but she's probably nine ish when I started writing this series 10. Um, so she was kind of like a prime middle grade reader. And that, that really was, I think, as I may have said earlier, kind of the genesis of this story, you know, just, she, she was kind of my first test audience as I, as I read to her, you know, you know, great fantasy books for kids like Cornelia Funky or Neil Gaiman, you know, just really seeing what she reacted to, what made her laugh, which stories engaged her, kind of formed the backbone for this series. Like it was a sort of test market of one, you know, and I kind of got a good feeling. I know what I liked as a kid, but you know, that was a long time ago. Um, it was interesting to see what, what caught her attention now and what, you know, drew her into the narrative and you know without a doubt you know I, I found that you know it was the humor that drew her into the book and you know it, when you write for kids you're this is when kids discover books um, and when they learn to be lifelong readers so you really want to find ways to draw them in and have them fall in love with books the way we did when we were kids and so I that's kind of how I settled on humor because it seemed like that was the perfect bridge that was what drew her into the story um, what about when it comes to writing for younger readers, what kinds of things, aside from, of course, it needs to be funny and it needs to be exciting, but beyond that, I mean, there are plenty of funny and exciting books that, of course, would not be at all right for young readers. Uh, I, I think a lot of us, again, from the outside looking in, assume that it's mostly about keeping the sentences short and the paragraphs short and the words simple and so on. And I'm sure there is actually much more to it. And maybe those matters aren't involved at all in terms of writing effectively for young readers just in general. What, what are the things you think about most as you are confronting the blank page and want to write something that a young reader is going to enjoy beyond the basics of making it funny and exciting? Yeah, you know, I was, I was reading, I was rereading Watership Down and the author said that I, he couldn't sell it initially because the editor said, well, it's written like an adult book with long sentences, but it's about rabbits. So adults aren't going to read it and kids aren't going to read it because they might like a book about rabbits, but they're not going to read a book with long sentences and, and careful writing. So as we all know, that's a classic. It's a great book. So, um, you know, the you know, our, our conception of what is good or what goes into a kid's book isn't necessarily always true. And sometimes you can make it classic by bending those rules. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I do, in general, try to keep things moving more quickly. Yeah, shorter sentences, shorter chapters. Um, you definitely, I can do it, when I write for adults, I can do a 20-page chapter. That's no problem. I, I 
think it would be a disaster to put a 20, 25 page chapter in a kid's book, especially when these books are 200 pages long. Uh, you know, I do think like the, the two, three page chapter, maybe four, five tops is, is kind of the limit. So yeah, and there are real structural things. I think if you're, you can bend them here and there. So I never, these aren't hard and fast rules. Um, you know, I do, I do think being quick and being entertaining is important for kids. There probably is, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I, I had no problem re reading something like Dune that takes 100 pages to get going. Um, I don't know that kids today have that attention span. It, it, that seems, and I might be wrong, and I'd be happy to be proved wrong, um, but I do feel like um, maybe you have to move to the point a little bit more quickly. And so I, I have de definitely found that when I do kids lit, even adult lit sometimes lately, I, it has to hit in the first sentence and then you have to establish your plot in the first chapter. Um, so, you know, there are some rules, but, you know, they're not hard and fast. Well, I think you've written a wonderful book here that uh, I, for one, uh, really enjoyed. I'm 62 years old, but <laughs> well, I like it too. a lot of young people enjoying this very much as well. It's the second book in the series, Confessions of a Dork Lord. The second book is called Grave Danger, and it's published by G.P. Putnam and Sons. And the author... Uh, Mike Johnston. Mike Johnston, I congratulate you on a really wonderful book and what a pleasure to speak with you about it on The Morning Show. Thank you so much and happy writing in the years to come. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTDHD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. And I am so grateful to be able to have a few minutes to speak with Sonia Manzano, who is beloved to many for her part of Sesame Street for many years uh, with the beloved character uh, Maria, but also the author of a number of wonderful books, including a memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. Her most recent book, her first book for National Geographic, uh, is called A World Together. And this is a book that the world really needs. <laughs> and uh, it is a beautiful exploration of just what makes our world uh, so beautiful and rich and how in our diversity uh, we find uh, layers of beauty that we would otherwise never be able to see. And we have a, a couple of minutes to speak with Sanya Manzano about what inspired her to write this book, A World Together. Sanya Manzano, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure to talk about the book. I jumped at the chance when National Geographic asked me to write a book about diversity, seeing as the state we find the world in today, and especially our country. Uh, I was, I'm especially um, chagrined of the state of affairs since I thought that Sesame Street had sort of solved all those problems in 1969 and and the result of the civil rights movement and the idealism of President Johnson when he wanted to create the Great Society way back in the 70s. Uh, so if I, one thing I've learned, it's that just because you uh, address a problem in one generation doesn't mean it's going to spill over into the coming generation. Mm. So uh, it was time for a good book about uh, sharing all the ways that we are the same uh, in that we feel sad and we feel happy and we all want shelter and we all feel hungry and we all are satisfied when we eat something good are all the ways that we're that we're the same part of the human condition the only ways we're different is culturally and those are the cultural things we should celebrate mm. so explain to our listeners what they find in the pages of this book uh both in 
your words, your lovingly crafted words, but also in the splendid visuals that are also part of this book. Yes, Lori Epstein, the photo editor at National Geographic, did a, a smashing, wonderful job of, of uh, showing all kinds of kids in all kinds of situations. I uh, wanted some urban images, and she complied by having that wonderful image of the kids playing by a fire hydrant because that was kind of my experience as a, as a kid growing up in the Bronx. And, uh, and I was also interested in not shying away from showing a sad image. And we have a picture of a, of a looks like a soldier kissing his child goodbye. And, uh, and the words that go with it say, and when people feel scared, they sometimes forget that deep down we're all the same. Mm. And I suppose I'm reacting to the fact that I see so much uh, anger out there more than I thought people felt, but clearly they do. And that must come out of fear, and we forget that we're the same. And that picture, coupled with those words, might inspire conversations in that direction or not. Or someone will just say, well, that's like this is a sad picture and, and leave it at that. So I, I hope it, it, it is a book that starts when you close the last page. Hmm. What do you think it is that keeps some people from embracing and celebrating this notion of our diversity? What What is it that, that makes that to some people uh, an idea that they just don't warm up to and, and, and maybe even uh, feel even kind of repelled by or, or afraid of? What are people afraid of when it comes to diversity? I, I, don't, I don't know why people are afraid of... I, I honestly don't, and I was struck by a, a quote. Uh, I want to say it was Carrie Mae Weems, but I don't know if she said that, an African-American artist. If it wasn't her, I apologize, but who said, uh, I look and I look and I look in the mirror, but I don't see what is so frightening. And uh, those, those, uh, w- those words stay with me. And, you know, I do, a, I do an animated, a voice on an animated show for Nickelodeon where I play a Mexican grandmother. Now, it's very funny. I enjoy myself because they keep correcting my Puerto Rican Spanish. Because it's a <laughs> little different. It's a little different. And the foods, you know, they'll, I'll have to pronounce foods that begin with the letter X. And I don't know what, how to pronounce them. So they, they'll help me with the pronunciation. But that doesn't frighten me that they're different. I, I, I enjoy it. It doesn't frighten me when I read Sherman Alexie books and I learn about Native American experience. It's curious. It's different from mine if when I read about a poor, uh, uh, a poor child on a reservation. I was a poor child in the Bronx, but they're, they're very different experiences. And it just... I'm curious about it, not frightened. Hmm. I don't know why some people find any change in anyone's lifestyle or behavior so frightening. I, I'm uh, at a loss. In the last 20 seconds, what did you learn from all of your work on Sesame Street that helped you understand and appreciate diversity? Humor. Humor will go very, very far people will laugh at the same things. And I think that's why Sesame Street is such a success worldwide, because people will 
have a sense of humor and usually find the same things universally Mm. humorous. Funny how laughter opens up the heart. And I love your book, A World Together, published by National Geographic. Sonia Mansano, thank you for giving it to the world. Thank you so much. Stay well. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Now for a fun interview that comes from The Morning Show archives. This interview dates all the way back to 2004. And I'm very excited that for the next uh, few minutes here on The Morning Show uh, that I can speak with uh, one of the most uh, important authors of, of young people's uh, fiction slash fantasy. Uh, his name is Jonathan Stroud. He is an English writer who uh, is highly acclaimed for a, a number of different works to his credit, and uh, in particular for a, a series of books with, uh, which are called the Bartimaeus Trilogy. The second book has just come out called The Gollum's Eye. And uh, in these richly written books, uh, we follow the exploits of a young man by the name of, of Nathaniel, uh, who uh, is able to uh, wield some of the wonders of, of magic. And it is a very, very uh, beautifully written book, which I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed. It makes me want to investigate the first book in the, in the trilogy uh, for myself. And uh, we're going to be speaking with Jonathan Stroud about how he has found himself uh, in this uh, particular arena, writing for young people, and maybe some of the special challenges which are involved in doing so. Jonathan Stroud, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks so much, Greg. Good to be here. Let's get that first question out of the way. I imagine you're <laughs> tired of being asked it, uh, but uh, how is it that you find yourself uh, applying your considerable talents uh, uh, to this particular audience? Well, I um, started out, after I left uh, college, I started out as an editor of uh, children's books at a London, a London publishing house. Uh, and uh, through that, I began to write young um, books for, for kids, uh, puzzle books and things things of that sort. Uh, and uh, gradually, I, I began to write novels too, but it was always for a, for a younger audience. Um, I think partly it's because um, to write for children, you've got to have a very good story, a good narrative to, to hold their, their attention. And um, stories with, with magic and with, um, with, with or fantasy were always areas that I was interested in as a child myself. So uh, I naturally gravitated towards that area. There are a couple of, of books out that at least generally are of this same ilk, including a, a few which have sold quite a few copies that will remain nameless. Yes, quite. But here's, here's, an, here's another question I'm sure that you're uh, weary of, of answering after, after all this time. But uh, in, in what way have you tried to stake out for yourself, at least in some respects, something new and, and fresh in the midst of other uh, yeah. people that have really just pretty much copied uh, a certain phenomenon? For sure. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, there's no point in doing it unless you create something that it has its own, um, its own freshness and its own voice. So the, the idea that, um, that I had for the Bartimaeus trilogy is that, um, the, the, in a way, the central protagonist is, in fact, um, uh, Bartimaeus, who's a, um, who's a genie uh, and not a human at all. Uh, there are human characters, there are magicians, but most of the magicians are actually very corrupt and um, not at all heroic or admirable. Uh, and, and the audience, I think, generally speaking, uh, identifies with this totally non-human, five thousand-year-old, sarcastic um, genie, uh, who, who's the most, by far and away, the most charismatic um, character in the book. Uh, and by by turning a lot of the conventions on its head, so that you don't identify with the with the, with the humans or the magicians, I think it is possible to um, have quite a lot of fun with with the conventions of the fantasy genre. 
Well, and what's interesting is you, you set up a, a scenario, for instance, in this current book where where uh, Nathaniel, uh, because of, of of a really kind of frightening attack by a, uh, by some sort of uh, distant enemy, yeah. uh, really is sort of forced to call upon the genie Bartimaeus right. uh, f- for aid and doesn't particularly want to, just realizing that this is s- someone, something kind of unpredictable. That's absolutely right. Um, and and in, the, in, the, in the first book of the trilogy, too, The Amulet of Samarkand, um, uh, you have this, uh, the, the central thing around which the whole, the whole story revolves is the relationship between Nathaniel and, and Bartimaeus. And it, essentially, it's, it's a very tense relationship. Neither of them likes the other. Um, when Bartimaeus is summoned by Nathaniel, he, he is basically his slave. He has to obey what Nathaniel says. So Bartimaeus resents this greatly. Nathaniel, for his part, is, is scared of what Bartimaeus might do to him because Bartimaeus obviously has, has many powers, um, and, and he has to make very, very uh, sure that um, he keeps the, the genie at a distance. So you have this quite, sort of, um, quite uh, entertaining and, and but very tense um, relationship at the, at the core of the book. Mm. Do I remember correctly that it opens in Prague? The, the city of Prague. It does. Yes, book two definitely does. Yeah, with with Nathaniel sort of checking on the defenses uh, surrounding the the city, and as he walks around, he's seeing kind of a wild, crazy quilt of 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 different <laughs> beings. And and I guess what's kind of interesting, and maybe unlike many fantasy books, is that 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 as you've already alluded to, mm. not every not every mythical being or mystical being here is formidable. I mean, some of them are kind of funny looking and, and uh, don't exactly know what they're doing. And that's what also gives this story uh, some of its unpredictability and texture. Yes, that's right. There's a, there's a lot of hierarchy in the book. And there's hierarchy uh, among the uh, humans, the magicians. There are, there are the, there's the, the prime minister of Britain is a magician and his, his ministers are magicians. And, and Nathaniel, who's this, 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 young, this young apprentice, essentially is, is working his way up the political greasy pole. But as you say, the, um, there's a lot of humor to be had from the, the hierarchy among the, um, the supernatural creatures too. And, and Bartimaeus is, is pretty much a middle-ranking um, genie. And he's, uh, he likes to think of himself as being uh, you know, pretty much top dog is pretty formidable but but as uh, it makes clear as, as he goes through it that there are plenty of imps who are who are less powerful than him but there are there are also plenty of uh, of uh, frits and other other creatures who are far more powerful so he has to use his wits um uh, as well as his his uh, magical abilities to survive he has been appointed to something called the office of internal affairs yeah and that's kind of an interesting presence in in a book like this i mean particularly when you think about you know a 12 year old taking it in hand uh, yeah t- uh, tell us about that and 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 how that can how that kind of image uh, can, can, can figure so well in a story like this? Well, I think um, a lot of fantasy, uh, fantasies over the years have, have often been quite simplistic in their um, approach towards good and evil. You tend to have uh, the good guys against the, um, uh, the, the, the bad guys. It, 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 it's quite, a, quite an um, absolute thing, good versus evil. Um, in, in what I've tried to do here is that most of the characters in the book, certainly Nathaniel the Kid and Bartimaeus the Genie, are quite ambivalent. Mor- morally, they're, they're a bit um, ambivalent. Um, they've got good elements, but they also have kind of bad impulses too. Um, and this is kind of reflected in the fact that it's quite a political book in some ways. The, um, the, the, their story is is uh, encased in, the, in, 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 a, in a very political world with, with people trying to um, gain power and to, to retain it. And, and um, down below them, you've got the ordinary people, the commoners, who have no magical ability at all and have, have, have no power. And 
what was fun for me was um, creating a story which has all the all the the usual magic and chases and fights and and you know nice monsters, but but setting it in a in a, a rather more astringent um, uh, political environment and and the, and the two things rather nicely um, mingle. I think you, um, fantasies often can be kind of quite um, quite feel good and a bit fluffy, and I think it's it's nice to put it in a in a slightly more somber political world. Mm. One of the uh, challenges facing Nathaniel is that he is trying to investigate uh, uh, some sort of powerful being that has yeah. been attacking London. Mm. And I guess that's is that what sends him to Prague. That's right. Yes, he has to track down the the, the, the source of um uh, of uh, well the 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 person who who sent this um this this magical uh, being to London and um, Prague, which was the previous. Uh, kind of uh, magical empire in in Europe. That there, there were plenty of um, magicians there who, who might well have who might well have done the deed. So he and Bartimaeus go go back to Prague to to try and track him down. Mm. One of the things I, I really do like about this book is that you have obviously worked out all kinds of specifics in your mind about the magic which is going to be wielded yeah. in in this trilogy. And and I mean, as though you have assembled in your head. And maybe maybe you've even laid it down on paper uh, a, a complex series of rules about how the magic works, what works and what doesn't, what different kinds of attacks there are. And, yes. Uh, I mean, the, and and I don't know that every author that writes in this field uh, is is always that careful with, with with the details details that I'm sure begin to really matter to your devoted readers. Oh, they really do. And in fact, as I've been going touring around America now, um, I've been getting um, very young readers, sometimes as young as nine and ten, who who sit there in front of me and um, uh, actually ask me all kinds of really quite probing questions about possible um, differences between details in books one and two. So it's, I have to be pretty careful about it. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think it is vital that um, an author who writes fantasy uh, works out the rules. Uh, as much as possible. If you don't, if you have a book where fantasy can pretty much do anything, there, there are no rules, then I, I think ultimately the, the, the audience will sense that. They'll, they'll realize anything goes, and it won't matter so much. Um, so, so Bartimaeus has got all these powers, but he is, um, he is constrained by, by some pretty severe rules about what he can and can't do. Uh, and, and the same goes for all the other characters, too. They're all, they're all kind of battling within these um, uh, within these restrictions and that, that that makes it i think a bit more a bit more interesting and a bit more tense yeah it brings to mind one of my only criticism about the uh, the last lord of the rings film yeah was that uh, after a while i i just felt like i couldn't follow who could do what yeah and and it bothered me that i didn't know who could do what because i mean i suppose on the one hand you're left kind of breathlessly wondering what's going to happen next mm. but but in in some of these kind of works it's actually it's actually nice to feel like you're working within some kind of framework, even if the framework is a magical one. Yes, uh, it's it's just nice to have points of reference, so you feel like you're in the midst of it. And uh, and uh, and I didn't always feel that way. For instance, with Lord of the Rings, and and for that matter, a whole lot of fantasy works. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you. I think I think it's quite it's quite key. And even if you're not you're not quite sure 
precisely what's bothering you, you, you start to sense if, um, uh, I think it's true of other genres as well, if, 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 the, if the makers kind of move the goalposts a little bit just to um, let the hero escape from a certain thing, then, you know, you sense this. Um, in fact, the, um, hopefully they're going to make a, a movie of, of the book, and um, Miramax are working on it um, at the moment. Uh, and they, because I'm, I'm still writing book three of the, the trilogy, um, they... they they sent me a list of uh, about 60 questions um, about what's going to happen in book three. How does the magic work? Can you be more precise about precisely what Bartimaeus can and can't do? Uh, and a lot of the questions I, I really struggled with, but uh, it, it helped me. I sat down and I spent a couple of weeks um, trying to formulate precisely what the rules were so that it helps them as they, they work on the screenplay. But it, it, it's also going to help me uh, as I try and tie the whole trilogy together in, in book three. Hmm. We're speaking with author Jonathan Stroud. Just a couple more quick questions if you have time. Of course, yeah, no problem. Um, one of the things, of course, that's, that's interesting is that you uh, you have set out to write a trilogy and uh, and these first two books are both uh, pretty substantial in size. <laughs> and, of course, we're talking about a when we're talking about a trilogy like this, it's a real epic canvas on which you're working. Um, talk to us about the, the special challenges which are involved in constructing something like this. I mean, sort of a Wagner ring cycle, but three parts instead of four. <laughs> but, I mean, a big, big story that somehow has to hold together. Um, aside from the obvious, what are the challenges of that? Well, I, th- I think the, um, just, just with working on the sequel... Um the Golem's Eye. Um, that's the first time I've ever tried to do a sequel, and yeah, there, I think there are there are considerable dangers attached to, to doing it. One of the things, if if the first book um, has been successful and that you've got characters that you enjoy and which your readers have enjoyed, um, the the temptation is to then um, pretty much replicate uh, that all of what you've done in book one in book two and, and just do a very similar um, kind of structure. Uh, I think if you do that, ultimately you, you you're leading to to decreasing returns. I think you, it's it's necessary to try and move. It's almost necessary to try and um, treat book two as um, a separate book, uh, which is which is unique as well as being um, part of this trilogy. So you've got to have the continuity. You've got to have the same the same characters doing doing sort of familiar things that everyone everyone will will, will appreciate. But you've also got to um, somehow ring the changes and make it a um, uh, a substantial. Uh, book in its own right, and in book two, one of the one of the, the things I tried to do was um, to introduce a, a third main character, a, a young girl called Kitty, who doesn't appear much in book one at all. But in book two, she really comes to the forefront. She's a she's a commoner who has no magical power, and she strongly resents the magicians and 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 the um, and the and the, the genies and the other the other spirits. And so she um, uh, her her perspective gives us um, a completely different look on on the world of the first book. Uh, and so hopefully that that makes book two quite different from book book one, but nonetheless it's part of a of a continuity. And in book three, which I'm doing now, um, I'll, I'll have to think of a way of um, again just slightly shifting it so that um, uh, the readers, for the readers, it remains fresh. One thing you said almost made it sound like you didn't start out writing a trilogy. Well, I, I, in fact, I, when I when I very first started, I didn't know what I was doing at all. I, I just started oh. writing about fifty pages of the book and. Um, I, I, in fact, I, um, I started writing Kitty's story for book one, um, and it didn't take me long to realize that it was going to be too difficult to put Nathaniel, Kitty, and Bartimaeus all into book one. So in the end, I, um, after probably about a month or two of writing, I, I shifted Kitty's story into 
um, the, the, the second book of the trilogy, and I actually did a chapter plan of all three books. It, so, so quite early on, I knew I was going to do um, three books, but um, the precise details, especially of book three, I have to say, um, were, were not fully thought out in my mind. Mm. Why a trilogy? Why not uh, book four and five, or, or for that matter, why not the Hardy Boys and, and 30 <laughs> books? Trilogy, the, 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 I think there's a reason why the trilogy is... Um, people, a lot of people do trilogies, and I think that there, is, there is a satisfactory structure to be had there that you can, you, you can set things up in the, in the beginning. You, you've got a middle section where you can kind of change things around and, and add new uh, influences, which I've, I've hopefully done with my book. And then in book three, you can, you can hopefully tie things together, get, get the threads and, and bring it to a satisfactory conclusion. I think there's quite a natural arc, story arc, that you can, you can uh, construct in those three if you keep on going um, ad infinitum, you, the danger is that you, um, you're going to get this diminishing returns thing. You know, can you truly sustain a, um, a narrative indefinitely? And I, I think, um, uh, I think that, that would, be, would be very difficult. I mean, it's always possible to bring characters back in a, another time, or um, you know, there, there would be other ways around it. But, I, but at the moment, I'm, I'm very happy with I'm just doing three and then having a rest. Right. Very good. Well, you've certainly earned earned a rest. Um, as you go on to a second book that is released, was it maybe a year and a half after the first one, or was it a couple of years? Um, What's the what was the the difference in release date between? Um, it'd be, it's been one a year. The, the last one came out um, around about this time last year. Oh, I think I'm getting confused because if I remember correctly, the story is picked up maybe two years That's after right. the first book yes, ended. No, but there's, that, that, you're right. There's, there's more of a jump within the story than, than there was in the publication. Right. But do you write each of these books now in the trilogy pretty much for the same reader? You're not making any kind of conscious decision to uh, write for a slightly older reader or, or, uh, uh. or to fashion slightly more complex stories? Or, or, or do you just sort of let it unspool the way it's going to unspool? <laughs> That's a good, interesting question. I, I, I certainly not consciously. I'm not. I'm not consciously thinking. Right. I'm going to um, make make book two more difficult than book one, or and and the same with book three. Um, I, I think again, as as because because I'm trying to do something slightly different with each book. There there are going to be differences, and um, it will be interesting to see whether um, if I come back in a year's time and ask the kids which which of the, of the two books so far they've enjoyed most, it, it'll be interesting to see whether there is any kind of um, age. Um, difference there, whether the younger kids prefer the first book or not. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't consciously want to alter it, um, because I know that, generally speaking, um, kids of 9 and 10 are going to pick up, in, in a couple of years, they can pick up books 1, 2, and 3, read them all in a, you know, in a month, and um, they've got to be able to read all three um, in, in quick succession. Hmm. Do you write with an international audience of readers in mind? Or, uh, I mean, I, as I read your book, it doesn't strike me as particularly British, and I'm assuming, and, and actually know for a fact, that, that you have young readers uh, uh, aplenty uh, here in the United States, yeah, for instance. Right, for sure, yeah. But is that something you very consciously think about, about crafting a story that will connect with a wide range of, of young people? Um, yes, but when I, when I first started writing, I, 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 wasn't, I didn't really have any kind of international audience in mind. I was just, just trying to um, create something that, that entertained me. And I guess in a way that's the key, really. I, I, was, I was looking to write something that, that would have inter- entertained me as a child um, and would also entertain me if I found it on a shelf now as, a, as an adult. And um, so I, I, I was always aware that the books might well appeal to children and to adults. Um, I, I, that was certainly my hope. Um, 
be honest, as I've gone around America, I've found absolutely no difference in the response between the American kids and the English kids. And I'm sure that if I went across to um, another country and I you know, spoke the language sufficiently, I would, I would see that they, the kids in, you know, in Japan or in, in Spain or wherever would, would all pro- approach the book pretty, uh, pretty similarly also. I don't, I don't think there's much difference um, internationally, uh, especially now that there's the age of all these, these fantasy books which are, and fantasy films which are crossing, crossing cultures. Exactly, very much so. That does bring to mind, once again, a certain bespeckled uh, young boy. <laughs> and let me just ask you, has, has that uh, Harry Potter uh, legacy been of any influence to you or, or maybe a cautionary tale of any kind? I mean, do you feel like, as an author, that has taught you any lessons or of, of, of any kind, really? Or have you really maybe tried to go the other way and really tried not to think too much about that phenomenon as you've crafted these own wonderful books of your own? Well, I think anybody who's writing fantasy um, at the moment uh, lives in the shadow of, 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 of the sort of Harry Potter um, achievement. And, and generally speaking, we're all very grateful for it because um, Harry Potter has done so well and has, has achieved so much media interest that there's, there's a, a very healthy environment for um, other books of children's fiction and certainly other books of, of fantasy. So, um, you know, I'm always very... Um, uh, I always feel sort of very good towards, towards Harry Potter in, in that way. But in the same way that Tolkien, I think, has, has done it for an earlier generation, you have to, you have to kind of live in the shadow of these these, these great works, and you have to do something that, that that's uh, unique to yourself. Is if you set out to to copy or to um, if you are unduly influenced by any of these things, then in the end you're going to create something that's, that's um, fairly short-lived. So you have to be true to what what. Um, what inspires you, um, but nonetheless, you know, you, you, you take advantage of the, of the environment um, uh, of the present day, and at the moment, it, it's an absolutely great time to be writing children's books. Absolutely. I'm sure you are excited at the prospect of, of this uh, trilogy uh, coming to life on the screen. Is that also sure. a frightening prospect at all? Because we certainly hear sometimes about how uh, the transfer to the screen is not an entirely successful one, or, or one that doesn't always make the author... Uh, particularly happy. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, when I um, signed the contract with Miramax um, a couple of years ago, I, um, I, yeah, at the time I, I was sort of anxious and I was told, yes, you, you know, you are signing over your um, uh, the control and, and they, they, they can pretty much do what they, they want with the, with the, with the story. But, uh, but as I thought to myself then, and I, I still think now, um, if the book is successful as a book, then um, the filmmakers are, are going to want to do something that is um, as faithful as possible to the, um, the story. Otherwise, they're going to get um, children and, and adults coming to see the film uh, who will who will who won't, won't like it because it'll be too different. Um, and I, I know for a fact that because um, I've spoken with the screenwriter and, and with people at Miramax that they are um, doing their darndest to be as um, uh, faithful as, as as possible to the essence of the book. Obviously, there are going to be changes because you're you're turning a 500-page book into a say a two-hour movie. You can't you you can't bring everything over. You've got to you've got to cut. And you've got to winnow down. Uh, and as long as they're they're faithful to the, the key relationships between the, the central characters, then um, I, I'm very confident that they will they will do a you know a very exciting adaptation of it. Well, it's certainly uh, exciting material with which they get to work. That's for <laughs> sure. This is a marvelously uh, written book. Again, the second book in the Bartimaeus trilogy. It's called The Gollum's Eye. Uh, I have mislaid my info. Oh yes. Oh, it's published by Miramax, isn't it? Miramax Kids is the publisher. Yeah, Miramax of the book. Hyperion. That's right. Very good. And Jonathan Stroud, what a pleasure and honor to speak with you uh, about your uh, your uh, 
also successful career, and we certainly wish you the very best in completing the third book of this trilogy and in whatever writing exploits you explore after that. And we thank you for joining us today on The Morning Show. Thanks very much, Greg. And I wanted to offer a little 2022 update on one matter which came up late in the interview in which uh, Mr. Stroud talks about the film rights to the books being purchased by Miramax. And indeed, uh, Harvey Weinstein did purchase the film rights, envisioning uh, these books perhaps serving as a replacement for The Lord of the Rings as Miramax's fantasy film franchise. Work was begun on scripts, but ultimately Harvey Weinstein left Miramax with his brother uh, to start their own company, which in effect left these films in limbo and ultimately never made. My understanding is another company has purchased the film rights uh, to the Bartimaeus uh, books, and there is every possibility that they may still be adapted for the screen. As far as I know, no films yet have appeared.